Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. And I think what really fascinates me is the way that we use satellites to help people on Earth more than those big sort of uh, scientific missions. I'm forever fascinated by the new applications that they're finding for satellites. I do believe satellites have a role to play for every man, woman and child on the Earth. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we had David Wade and we will be discussing space insurance. After completing his master's in astronautics and space engineering, David became a satellite systems engineer, followed by six years as a senior lecturer in satellite systems at Kingston University. However, in 2000, he made one giant leap into insurance, first at Brit and for the last 14 years at Atrium where he's a space underwriter, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, David, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, And one thing I've learned from all these podcasts is that that people end up in insurance for all sorts of reasons, and rarely has it been a a, a career decision from the age of 12 or anything like that. But I don't think anyone has made quite as dramatic a leap from one career to another as you. So, So please, could you talk us through how you kind of move from the world of astronautics which is a word which I've learned for this podcast, um, to, to the world of insurance. Well, as, as you said, I was, I was teaching. I was, I was lecturing at Kingston University, uh, and I really enjoyed the teaching. Um, I really enjoyed the, the research that I was doing as, a, as an academic. But the way that universities were going, there was a big emphasis on uh, school management, and I was being pushed down the route of school management, which was loading up the administration load and reducing my teaching load, uh, uh, reducing my research. And by this stage, I was only in my late 20s. It was taking taking me away from my passion of space, um, which I'd always been fascinated in ever since I was a young child. So I started looking around. I thought that my engineering background would probably be most useful to insurance. So I sent out my CV to a couple of places, um, hit very lucky with what was then called the Marum Space Consortium, later became the Brit Space Consortium. You know, they really were one of the few worldwide leaders in space insurance at the time. Um, great team of underwriters, um, Simon Clapham, Brian Spark, Andrew Fletcher. You know, they were the real pioneers of the space insurance market when it really started in the 80s. And there was an opportunity to go and work with them, which was, which was fantastic. So I did that for six years, and then Atrium came along. Um, Atrium was actually one of our consortium members when I was at Brit, and just a chance conversation made it be known that uh, they were interested in starting a space consortium, and it was a no-brainer for me. Um, I always had the utmost regard for the underwriters that I'd met and worked with from Atrium. Very professional outfit. It was a great opportunity, and I I jumped at the chance in 2007. We started the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. We'll probably come on to it a little bit more a little bit later, but but before we do, you mentioned the word consortium a number of times. What, What do you mean by space consortium? Yeah, absolutely. So a consortium is a group of syndicates working together, really. So although I work for Atrium, Atrium is the lead member of a consortium. We have another eight syndicates that are a member of that consortium. We combine our capacity to offer a bigger line across the consortium. So we have a capacity of $45 million. Atrium is only 11.75 million of that. 
and then the remaining capacity comes from eight other syndicates within Lloyd's who've delegated their underwriting authority on, on space to us to underwrite on their behalf. We'll come back to the insurance details um, in a moment, but uh, but we, you know, if we're going to talk about a space, we've got to talk about a space, don't we? So, <laughs> so do, do, do you want to talk us through a, a, a potted history of, of space exploration and including a brief overview of, of where we are now, really? Yeah, sure. Oh, where to start? Prior to World War II, there had been some rocket research going on, but it was really the onset of the Second World War that brought rocketry to the fore, um, and suddenly the realization that you know these rockets could be used as missiles. Um, the most advanced was was Germany. Werner von Braun in uh, in Germany developed the V two rocket. And that started flying towards the end of the Second World War. Something like 1,400 of those were launched on and, and hit London in the few months before the end of the war. Um, and when the war came to an end, both the Soviet Union and the Americans went and grabbed the engineers and the technology that the Germans were abandoning at that stage and started to use that technology to develop their own missile programs. Uh, you know, at the same time, we were seeing the development of nuclear weapons. And the first country that had that capability to to launch a, a, a rocket had that capability to deliver a nuclear weapon that the other side did not have. So there was a race on to develop these missiles. And satellites were a bit of a byproduct, really. Satellites were an opportunity to show that you had that capability by launching a peaceful satellite for some application in space rather than launching a warhead at the other side, at, at your enemy. The Soviet Union won that race when they launched Sputnik 1 in October 1957. It didn't take long for the Americans to catch up. They, they followed in January 1958. Um, but those two satellites, those first two satellites that both the Soviet Union launched and the Americans launched, they both provided very good science. Uh, the Soviet Union monitored the decay of the orbit of Sputnik, and that helped them to determine the density of the upper atmosphere. Um, Explorer 1, launched by the Americans, had some radiation sensors on it, and that discovered the Van Allen radiation belts around the Earth. So very quickly it was realized that there was some real science and some real applications that these satellites could be used for. So at that point it started to divert from you know, the military side, and we ended up with the sort of the, the scientific and, um, yeah, and applications that we use satellites for versus the, the military use of missiles, really. So, I mean, looking on to where we've used satellites since then, by far the most common ones are communications. We have communication satellites dotted around the Earth carrying communication signals. Uh, we have Earth observation satellites, so satellites looking back at the Earth, taking photographs, initially used by the military as spy satellites, but now commonly used in large civil engineering projects or town planning, um, pollution monitoring, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and navigation satellites as well, of course. You know, we all think of sat-nav for the car. That's another military application of satellites, which we're allowed to, to use, we're allowed to access, and has had tremendous benefits on the economy, you know, whether it be allowing ships and aircraft to navigate around the globe or, or even just parcel delivery companies. I mean, some of, the, some of the parcel delivery firms would not be able to exist without, or certainly not as efficiently, without the GPS and satellite navigation services that we have today. And how many satellites are there up there at the moment, would you say? Yeah, so I mean, since 1957, when Sputnik 1 was launched, there's been about 12,000 satellites launched in total. Uh, and there's about 4,000 of those that are active at the moment. 
Um, that number has actually doubled in the space of just the last couple of years. A couple of years ago, we started to see the launch of some very large communication constellations. So traditionally, communication satellites were in a geostationary orbit, so that's 36,000 kilometers above the equator. And they go around the Earth at the same speed at which the Earth is rotating. So the satellite stays fixed in one place when viewed from the Earth. You know, um, so the satellite dish on the side of your house to pick up Sky TV, for example, can look in one particular direction only. What's happened more recently is that the latency uh, associated with using satellites 36,000 kilometers away from the Earth means that you get a quarter of a second delay by the time the, the signal goes out to the satellite and back again. To reduce that latency, to, to reduce that time delay, they've brought satellites closer to the Earth. But the fact that the satellites are closer to the Earth means that they, they move with respect to the person on the ground. So as one of those satellites disappears over an horizon, you need a satellite coming up over the opposite horizon to continue your phone call. You know, otherwise, there's going to be a break in the service. So what we've ended up with is a flotillas of satellites rather than one single large satellite beaming down to the whole of Europe. We end up with flotillas or constellations of satellites that are providing that service. And the biggest ones of those now are things like Starlink by SpaceX. They've launched over 1,600 satellites now. Um, and OneWeb, um, which is a, another satellite constellation, which has launched over 200 satellites now. And you say they're different heights. What, what sort of heights do they? They're at about uh, 1,100, well, between 500 and 1,100 kilometers or so. Um, so much closer to the, to the Earth. You don't get that time delay with the signal. And they will typically be used now for things like broadband services or mobile services. Um, you know, if you're halfway across the Atlantic on a on a flight, yeah, these days we all still want to be connected. We all still want satellite TV. We all still want to be able to, you know, look at our Facebook page or whatever it may be. And when you're halfway across the Atlantic, the only way to do that is using a satellite. Wow, that's amazing. So I'll just think if if, if you can visualize the globe. Then, then 500 kilometres is what is that the distance between, say, London and Edinburgh, maybe? That's Edinburgh, sort of, probably. So, yeah. so, so yeah. if you're looking at the globe, then, then you, you go back to the, the moon, and you, then it really is skimming the surface of the Earth, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and the, the atmosphere is still very tenuous, but it's still existent at that kind of level. So, you know, these satellites have to overcome the drag force acting on them. Um, they have to have propulsion to manoeuvre themselves in orbit. Um, you know, maintain that orbit that they need. Yeah, they'll last a few years and then we'll re-enter the atmosphere and burn up and new satellites will be launched as a replacement. And how much does it cost to design and construct a, a single satellite? I presume it will be different depending on the satellite, but uh, what, what, what's the sort of range? Yeah, so, I mean, some of these Constellation satellites, they, they really are being built on production lines now. I mean, some of these companies are building a satellite a week or, or even quicker most of those are quite small, um, 200 to 500 kilograms or so. And a lot of them are developed for maybe a million dollars a piece. So they literally provide their service for a few years, are thrown away, you know, job's done, you launch a replacement satellite. At the opposite end of the, of the extreme, we're looking at some large geostationary satellites. Uh, the largest ones of those will be over 6,000 kilograms. Uh, they will have a lifetime of 15 years. And values typically in the 200 to 250 million dollar kind of range, but in the most extreme, 
over $500 million for some of the most advanced of the satellites that we see. How does insurance fit with all of that? How's the history of space insurance sort of overlay on that? Um, as I understand it, sort of the first satellite policy uh, was through Lloyd's in 1965, was it, there or thereabouts? Yeah, yeah, yeah um, that's right. But equally, I understand that kind of programmes such as uh, the Apollo space missions and you know, all, the, all the NASA stuff is effectively self-insured. Yeah, um, but yep. through the US government. So, so, so how does insurance fit in? Well, when, is it, when has it been used and when has it, hasn't it been used? Yeah, absolutely. So space insurance really grew with the development of the commercial space activities, which primarily satellite television, uh, which really grew in the 1980s. Prior to that, there were a few projects, um, but typically it was very limited cover. And space insurance at the time was really a sort of an adjunct to aviation insurance. So yes, you're correct. The first policy was in 1965, but that was a pre-launch policy. So that was covering the satellite from the time that it was manufactured until it was taken to the launch site and put on top of the launch vehicle ready for launch. So that was the first policy that was issued. That was for a satellite called Intelsat-1 or, or Early Bird. After that, we started to see a little bit more insurance become available. So you might have had a, an intergovernmental organization such as Intelsat, International Telecommunications Satellite Company, launching five or six satellites. And they would come and buy a policy covering their next five or six satellites for launch phase only. So only whilst it was attached to the rocket going into space, it did not cover the satellite once it was in space. But gradually, as the technology improved, as insurers became more familiar with it, and then crucially in the 1980s, as we started to see the real commercial space industry develop rather than the governmental or the intergovernmental agencies, you know, we started to see entrepreneurs looking at launching satellite television companies like Echostar um, and DirecTV in the US. They needed the insurance. They were, you know, these were commercial projects capital-intensive commercial projects, borrowing money from the banks, they needed to be able to buy insurance to protect those assets. And that's really where the, the space insurance industry you know, started to step up and, and become a, a class of business in its own right. Um, yeah, and as, as experience has grown, we've, we've offered more and more cover, you know, offering cover now for the satellites in, in orbit as well as, as, as the launch phase. So, so is there, how do you do it? Is, is there one policy that covers a satellite's life from, from cradle to grave? Or are there separate policies for each of those different phases? Yeah, so there's typically separate policies for each phase. Um, so before the satellite is launched, there's a, there's a pre-launch cover that's available. This is really offered by the cargo markets. Uh, at that stage, a satellite is just another piece of equipment being transported from a factory to a place of use. Uh, in our case, it's been taken from a satellite manufacturing facility to a launch site. And the pre-launch covers all of those activities whilst the satellite is put on top of the rocket and prepared, ready for launch. So that would be things like filling the satellite full of fuel, doing some testing at the launch site, um, encapsulating it, putting the satellite into the payload fairing on top of the rocket and putting that on top of the rocket ready to launch. That policy ceases when the launch cover starts. And when I refer to launch cover, uh, that's usually really means the first year of life of the satellite. So that policy attaches at intentional ignition or liftoff or launch. Um, so that would cover the satellite whilst it was on its rocket going into space. 
it separates from the rocket. And then at that stage, the satellite has to use its own propulsion system, its own rocket engine, to maneuver itself into the correct position in orbit. It would then have some deployable items like antenna or solar arrays that have to be folded up whilst it's on top of the rocket. They have to be unfurled, and the satellite needs to be tested to make sure that it survived the launch. That typically takes about a month. And then once that first month has, has passed and the satellite's been thoroughly tested, it's handed over to the, uh, to the satellite operator and it starts commercial operations. So our launch policy would usually cover from that moment of launch, including all of that in-orbit testing, deployments, et cetera, and the remaining period of the first year that the satellite's in commercial service. So to a layman, that, that's, the, that's the highest risk element absolutely absolutely yeah definitely uh, and that's the bit that you personally specialize in is it well we we do launch and in orbit so as the satellite's coming towards the end of its first year in orbit we get a health report to say how the satellite is performing uh, we review that health report and then we offer cover for the following 12 months and typically coverage is offered for 12 months at a time for the duration of the satellite's life which yeah, is typically 15 years for a large modern communication satellite There is one additional cover, third-party liability cover, uh, and that's typically the only mandatory cover. The licensing state, so if you're flying from or if you're licensed by the UK, the UK Space Agency will have certain stipulations in its license, and one of those is usually to buy third-party liability cover should you cause damage to anybody else's property. If that damage is in space, they've got to prove who was at fault. If you cause damage on the Earth, then the fault is absolute. and you will be liable for that damage, or at least the launching state will be liable for that damage. So in other words, if if a satellite comes tumbling to Earth and lands in the middle of Times Square, that's the policy that will pick up all of that loss? That's right, that's right. So um, typically, it it, it is the launching state. All of of our activities are are governed by UN conventions, uh, and it is the launching state that is responsible There's a convention called the International Liability for Damage Caused by Space Objects, and it's that convention that is responsible. Under that convention, it is the launching state, but then through the licenses, the launching state passes that responsibility onto the satellite operator. Not all states require you to purchase third-party liability for in-orbit activities. Most states do require it for launch activities. But you know, the chance of some of these satellites coming back down and hitting something on Earth when they're 36,000 kilometers above the equator is, is very unlikely. So, so not all states insist on it being purchased for in-orbit activities. And, and, and presumably nowadays, as, as you're saying, a lot of the satellite, the Constellation satellites are, are small and will be burnt up coming back in anyway so yes typically yes absolutely and, and, and presumably uh, uh presumably initially the policies were bespoke absolutely but are they becoming more standardized now they're still relatively bespoke i mean we're certainly seeing um satellites are becoming a bit more standardized now um but the the payload on the satellites so the bit that provides the useful application whether it be communication uh, amplifiers for communication services or cameras for Earth observation satellites, those generally tend to be, uh, they, they still differ from one satellite to the next. So whilst a lot of the policy wordings are very similar, uh, we still usually have bespoke loss definitions. You know, it's a class of business where we have few statistics. <laughs> um, you know, so we, we really are reliant on engineers to 
you know, to kick the tires and, and, and really get down to the nuts and bolts and understand how this satellite was built and, and how it's been operated, what's new in comparison to previous satellites, uh, what's the same as previous satellites. You know, so we, we spend a lot more time doing sort of in-depth analysis rather than sort of relying on statistics. Which is where your expertise comes in, presumably. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, that's, I, I, think, I think space insurance is, uh, yeah, there's probably more engineers and scientists in space insurance, whether they be the underwriter or whether they be consultants to an underwriter. Um, but yeah, most, most space underwriters have some sort of engineering input, at least. And it sort of follows on from what we said a little while ago, but the, the, the space shuttle disasters, uh, they were not on the commercial insurance market. No. What, what, what about the International Space Station? Is that introduced through, through states or through the insurance market? Yeah, so a bit of both, really. Um, so the space shuttle was, I mean, originally it was seen as sort of the workhorse of the US rocketry fleet. So when the space shuttle was introduced, there were certainly commercial satellites launched on board the space shuttle. But when the Challenger accident happened in 1986, it was decided that really the space shuttle should be kept for human spaceflight and scientific purposes. Um, and all of the commercial satellites, like the satellite TV satellites, they were put onto a new generation of expendable rockets. And those really are the rockets that are still used today. The space station is very much an international governmental collaboration. You know, it's NASA, the European Space Agency. So typically the space station is not insured itself, but some of the activities on the space station are becoming more commercial. So there, are, there have been some commercial activities and some insurance activities around the space station. So we're seeing some small satellites actually launch from the space station now, carried up in the capsules and then launch from the space station. So, you know, some of the capsules that go up to the space station uh, are now insured. And and what financial levels of insurance are we are we talking about? Let, let's say, let's say to use a slightly absurd example, I want to launch a a satellite into geostationary orbit over my house. Mm-hmm. Um, how much insurance would I need to to do that? Yeah, so I mean, the only the only mandatory one would be uh, third party liability insurance. Typically, you need something like sixty million euros of cover for third party liability. That would typically cost something like sixty thousand euros premium. Um, the other areas of insurance, space insurance, are not mandatory, but you may choose to buy pre-launch insurance. That's relatively cheap. That's um, your transportation of cargo, so that's not a particularly high expense. For launch and in orbit, you know, we typically talk in, in percentage of the value of the satellite. Yeah, and a typical rate right now would be something of the order of 6 to 12% for launch at the first year, and about uh, 0.7 to 1.5% per year well, that the satellite is in orbit, depending on the launch vehicle and the type of satellite that's, uh, that's been insured. And, and what does the future hold? What, what trends um, and what developments in satellite technology are you seeing and what consequences may there be for insurance? You, you've always talked about these constellations, but um, what, what else might there be? There's, there's a lot going on at the moment. Space has become sort of, it seems as though space is the, the next big market for some of the uh, tech entrepreneurs. So we've seen Elon Musk's Jeff, Jeff Bezos yes. both come into space, Richard Branson coming into space. Um, so there's certainly a lot of interest in space activities. Uh, it's a huge amount of, uh, of development. Um, at one end of the extreme, we're seeing very small satellites, you know, the much more capable satellites as electronics have shrunk. 
you know, you can perform a, a quite a sophisticated mission with even a very small satellite. So we're seeing lots of CubeSats. Um, these are satellites that might be anywhere between one kilogram and typically three kilograms, but can still deliver a very useful mission. There's a company based in San Francisco called Planet that's using a, a constellation of three kilogram satellites to take pictures of the Earth's surface. They've now got enough satellites that they can image the entire Earth's surface every day. So you can really start to see the effects of things like deforestation on, on a daily basis. You can track it. Um, those satellites are three kilograms, and yet they can still take a photo of the Earth's surface with a resolution of about four meters. So each pixel in that image is only four meters across. That's incredible. They're incredible for such a small satellite. And it's got, if you say three kilograms, that's, that's, that's tiny. About the size of a shoebox, yeah. So imagine a shoebox, that's about the size of the satellite, yeah. Take, taking photographs of me in my garden. Yeah, I mean, it, it would not be able to see you um, or make out any detail. <laughs> you, you say that, you say that, David. I, I mean, at a resolution <laughs> of four metres, it could probably it could probably see your garden shed, um, for example. Yeah. You know, it would be able to tell the difference between a bus and a car. Um, yeah, so, I mean, incredible capability from something the size of a shoebox. We are seeing lots of other developments, um, lots of people interested in space sustainability. So a couple of companies that are now looking to capture uh, space debris and remove space debris. A company called Astroscale is doing some great work there, trying to capture space debris and remove it from orbit. We're seeing life extension vehicles, so a satellite that's running out of fuel, but still has a useful communication service to provide. Um, there's a company called Northrop Grumman has now launched two mission extension vehicles. They're called MEVs, and they go up and dock to the back of that satellite that's running out of fuel and take over the propulsion system. So the satellite can continue providing its service with this little satellite dock to the, to the back of it, which is providing all of the propulsive force that it requires. The last one that they did earlier this year, they didn't even have to switch off the satellite. The satellite continued providing its communication service whilst the MEV docked to the back of it. So uh, incredible capabilities. Uh, so it's like it's like a so there's a Land Rover and the caravan goes and joins the Land Rover and pushes the Land Rover. Absolutely, sorry, that's, yeah. that's an, appall that's no, an no, appalling no, analogy. No, no, it's good. And, pro and probably vaguely insulting as well. But, uh. <laughs> no, no. And then um, lunar missions, we're starting to see commercial activity going. Uh, some of the NASA missions, which will use commercial providers to take payloads to the lunar surface. And again, these will be done under commercial contracts, which may require insurance. So lots of different areas that we're seeing. Well, that'd be, that'd be an exciting one for you as an insurer to be involved with, if uh, you know, as and when that happens. Absolutely, to be, absolutely. To be the insurer of the next lunar mission would be great. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, one of those things that you're a little bit wary of until it's proven. But, <laughs> <laughs> but once they start to prove the capability, certainly it's, uh, you know, what we try to do is certainly encourage these companies you know, we want to be at the forefront of some of these uh, new activities. But yeah, you don't want to be overly exposed to some of these new activities until they start to be proven. <laughs> and, and Mars missions and things like that, presumably that's all, that's, that's state at the moment, that, that's US government yeah, stuff. Primarily, yes. Uh, we've, from time to time, we've had interest in, in missions beyond Earth orbit. But um, yeah, primarily at the moment, it's state-run uh, missions when once you start to get out to Mars and the recently announced missions that NASA's going to send to Venus again. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Mm, yeah. Okay. And have they got any plans to go? Because 
Uh, you know, the, 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 the one fact about space that just never ceases to amaze me is, is obviously Voyagers 1 and 2, which were sent off to explore the outer planets in, in the 1970s. And mm. outside of our, our heliosphere, I yep. believe is the yep. technical That's right. That's right. Yep. Effectively outside of our, 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 the, the power of the sun, the, the gravitational pull of the sun. Mm-hmm. And, and they, so it's now in interstellar space. Yep. And, and they will now outlast the Earth, that they will just travel for billions of years. And so, so something, something man-made, well, presumably by the time we get to that stage, there'd be loads of man-made things out there, but, <laughs> but, but that they will be the oldest man-made things kind of, yeah, traveling beyond after the earth has gone and we're, we're uh, all, yeah, uh, we're yeah. all vaporized. I, I just find that absolutely yeah, mind blowing. Yeah. And, and not only that, but to think that it's something from the 1970s of, of any decade Yes, to yes. be commemorated in that way, it'd be the 1970s. Bizarre. Yeah, it's it is. Uh, I mean, they, they were absolutely tremendous missions, and you know the fact that they're still receiving some signals back from those satellites is incredible. Yeah, eventually they will run out of power. They've got small nuclear power sources on them, uh, which has allowed them to operate for so long. But eventually they'll run out of power. But yeah, they'll continue to drift through interstellar space until they. I can't remember when they're due to arrive at the next nearest star. It's, I don't know, 160,000 years or something. I think they, they start yeah. to approach the next nearest star. Yeah, that was mind-blowing. Isn't it? And, and is, is space still something that, that fascinates you? Because insurance has a way of, I don't know, r- removing the magic from some things maybe and turning it into risk and percentage risk and pounds, shillings and pence. But do you still have that sense of awe, that, 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 almost that childish glee in all of this? Yes, I do. Um, yeah, and things like um, Voyager missions certainly grab the headlines, you know, those big sort of interplanetary missions, you know, we've seen the recent helicopter flights on Mars. I mean, those are the things that grab the headlines and they are absolutely fantastic, but that's a, it's a tiny niche area of what the space industry is really. And I think what really fascinates me is the way that we use satellites to help people on Earth more than those big sort of uh, scientific missions. Yeah, I'm I'm forever fascinated by the new applications that they're finding for satellites. You know, taking taking images or finding areas of still water um, in satellite images so that they can direct malaria treatment. Because if they find an area of still water, that's where the mosquitoes are. Yeah, I do believe satellites have a role to play for every man, woman, and child on the earth. And um, you mentioned the space junk um, a bit earlier on. Mm. I mean, there's a, there are sustainability issues. Um, people say, you know, we're filling up the space with with loads and loads of satellites. Admittedly, there's a lot of space up there. Yes. So, um, and and as you say, quite a lot of these ones are are designed to burn up again on on reentry. So, mm-hmm. but 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 how is the space industry dealing with the, the issue of space junk? Yeah, there's a lot more interest in, in it at the moment. There's, um, there's no strict rules as such, but certainly satellites should be re-entered within 25 years if they're in a low-Earth orbit. If you are operating out in geostationary orbit, which is a very useful orbit, you tend to push the satellites another 300 or so kilometers out uh, and clear geostationary orbit to make way for a new satellite to come along. But over the years, there's been a lot of debris generated, there's something like 27,000 pieces of debris that are being tracked by the uh, US Department of Defense, but that's only the large pieces. Uh, typically, anything larger than a tennis ball can be tracked, but there's probably millions of pieces that are smaller than that. And lots of kinetic energy. Um, I mean, even a tiny particle, a particle of dust yeah, in low Earth orbit, they're traveling at seven kilometers a second. 
So, you know, even a particle of dust hitting a satellite is enough to cause tremendous damage. So, you know, we have to take it seriously. Regulators are starting to look at it. Uh, there's a lot of concern about the number of satellites that have been launched into these constellations and potentially whether or not that could make orbits unusable if anything were to go wrong. No new regulations yet, but I think, I think there will be in time. And I think insurers have a role to play there. I think insurers need to be you know, lobbying governments, you know, raising the issue of space sustainability to real risk for us you know, if, a, if a satellite's hit by a piece of debris. Yeah, and in the same way that insurers on the ground are refusing to insure some oil tower projects or coal-fired power stations, yeah, I think I think space insurers should be thinking along those lines as well and looking at each of the satellite projects that comes along and and thinking about it from a sustainability point of view. Thank you, David. That that was absolutely fantastic. And so, uh, another in terms of the, the final question, the, the another constant theme of these podcasts. Um, has been the message that insurance mirrors life in some way, in that whatever you're interested in, whatever is, is, is the thing that gets you going, that you have a passion in, some form of insurance is likely to be linked to it. So if you if you love sport, there's sports insurance. If you love art, there's art insurance. Um, and it seems to me that you are the, the absolute perfect example of that. Someone who, who loves space, studied space, uh, astronautics at, at the university, lectured in it, but is now involved in insurance, kind of, as you say, involved in the business side of it. Um, so so what, what advice would you give to, to someone, um, a scientist maybe, um, who is thinking about the, the switch to insurance? Yeah, I'd certainly recommend it. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think insurance is, is a fascinating career. Um, I mean, space insurance is a very niche area and you know, very few openings. I consider myself very lucky to have had the opportunities that I've had. But I do think scientists and engineers are very well placed for insurance. You know, they, they have key skills that are needed for insurance. Um, you know, scientists and engineers typically are logical thinkers, methodical thinkers. Um, you know, they're taught to think about how to do things differently and why we've done things a certain way. And I think those are really useful skills for insurance, you know, in risk assessment activities. Um, but if you're interested in sort of using that methodical thinking, using your background, and then mixing it with a bit of finance, a bit of legal, a bit of you know, the other aspects that come into insurance, and trying to bring those all together into a single you know, coherent policy that captures what you want to offer, what the client's looking to buy. I, I've, I've found my career in insurance fascinating. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I think engineers and scientists are, are very well placed to, uh, to work in insurance. I couldn't recommend it highly enough, quite frankly. David, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.